How many of you excited to be here this morning? Yeah. I'm excited. I don't have COVID. And, and um, man, I've been dodging that thing like a ninja. Um, two straight years. <laughs> but uh, anyway, um, it's a good day. It's a good day. I'm excited to I'm excited to start this series this morning. We are starting a series called Dwell, Gaze, and Seek, which is some from Psalm 27. And um, we wanted to open this year uh, with a series on the pursuit of God and His pursuit in us before we talked about anything that we do like in our activity or our ministry. We, we want to start with pursuit. And there's this uh, book I've read um, that is a significant book throughout history. It's called the, the Cloud of Unknowing. It's written by an anonymous author, and it was, I think, written in the 13th, 14th century by an English um, Christian mystic who had pursued God and wanted to give other people some ideas of how they could pursue God in prayer. And um, the author, the anonymous author, writes this. says, For I tell you, this, one loving, blind desire for God alone is more valuable in itself, more pleasing to God and to the saints, and more beneficial to your own growth, and more helpful to your friends, both living and dead, than anything else you could do. Anything else you could do. I love that. There is a couple years ago, I was having this conversation with God, and um, the Lord, the Lord just like dropped this little thing in my heart. He said, "You know, like you're more productive when you take a walk with me than anything else you do." And so I kind of relate to this this author what he what he says, and um, I want to pray before we begin that this is going to be a year that all of us will experience the beauty of God. And that He would position us to be seekers, to be those that are longing for Him, and that this would be a year that we would just, we would observe and we would see. I, I don't think His beauty is something you have to look far for. I think it's something you have to focus on wherever you are. And so Lord, I just pray everyone, that this would be in a year where we would be those who gaze upon your beauty, that we would see your, your incredible work that is all around us all the time, um, in the midst of suffering and sickness and pain and loss and um, all the things that life th throws at us, your beauty is present, God. And so we love you, Lord. We bless you. Amen. Um, I, I really believe that um, his highest desire, as the, the God's highest desire, is not to get you to go do a bunch of things for him. But his highest desire is to commune with you. How many of you would agree with this? God, God's not looking for, um, he is looking for laborers, but more importantly than more importantly than just looking for laborers, God's looking for friends. He's looking for those who, who will sit and, and be with Him. And so I want to read Psalm 27. And I want you to hear David. This is a psalm written by David. It's one of David's most, most remembered psalms. There's multiple um, verses in this psalm that are um, kind of like a, on a coffee mug or something. You know, I don't, I, I don't know what, but... Just, just hear these words. If you have to close your eyes, whatever. Um, I'm going to read these out because this is going to give this verse four is going to give context for our, our whole series. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, 
to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. For in the day of trouble He will keep me safe in His dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of His sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At His sacred tent I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me for forsake or forsake me, God my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in your straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart. And wait for the Lord. I think we can just be done right now. (laughs) Um, David does a few things in this prayer that I want you to observe. If you go back home and you read this, you you can see it in this sort of pattern. David first opens by making a declaration about who God is. Um, look, he, he opens by saying, the Lord is the light of my salvation. He goes on to talk about, in his opening words, first two verses, who God is. Then he shifts to making these requests for God. His request, opening request, is this one thing I've asked? You know, to dwell in your, dwell in your house, to you know, gaze upon your beauty, to seek your, in your temple. And then he finishes with the statement of how he as a follower of Yahweh, is going to be in the world. And in our prayer lives, we, we, we kind of um, should emulate this, this pattern. And you'll see this a lot in the Psalms. One of the beautiful things about why I think, you know, um, Jewish, you know, if you're a religious Jewish kid growing up, you would memorize the Psalms. And because within the Psalms, our prayers for every moment and season of life. And so I think it's helpful to see this pattern that in prayer, we can declare who God is. is. We can enter into these requests or, or, or asking Him of what it is that's on our heart. And then finally, prayer is not just meant to connect us with God and to connect our prayers with Him. It's also meant to orient us rightly in the world with Him. And so David finishes this way, Wait for the Lord, be strong, take heart, wait for the Lord. Um, he, he's, he's speaking of how he will be in the world. Amen? And so, um, this is like, this is the prayer of a warrior. Like, I want you to get this. Most, most of the, um, the uh, Jewish commentators believe that this, this uh, psalm was written at the end of his life. Somewhere towards the end of his life. And he spent, if you think about David, like he, he got, you know, he got promoted really quickly from killing that lion and, and the bear and the, and, you know, when he was a kid to going and killing Goliath to being a king, a, attendant in the king's court to when he was very young, entering his adult life, he was chased by the king. And so then he spends a good portion of his like maturing adult life, basically running from Saul. Then when he gets on the throne, finally, he spends a really long portion of his life then, uh, then attacking different lands to increase the land of Israel. And then he spends a, ne- a next remainder of his adult life basically defending that which he had gone and gotten. And so, like, you have to realize that for better or for worse, David was a warrior, and he's writing this in the context of the fact that he's been fighting his entire life and he acknowledges that God has has kept him safe but this is so this is the context he's saying this in he's done this his whole life and he's finally just like god like 
One thing, one thing I ask from you, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty and to seek you in, the, in your temple. Like, I've done this fighting, I've done this running. In fact, even, even the scripture talks about how God um, withheld some things from him because he was a man of blood. And so he spent all of, all of his life doing these things that seemingly, when you read the Psalms, do not fulfill the innate desire of who God has created him to be. And he's saying, this is what I want. So the warrior, the builder, the king, just wanted to sit with God. Sometimes, when you spend a life doing things for God, you become exhausted with that work itself, and it it seemingly becomes less significant to you. And you simply want to be. How many of you have ever felt exhausted with doing work for God? I I would say that it's amongst one of the most um, common frustrations that I've heard from my friends, from people in my own like circle over the last few years, is just having having sort of experienced a sense of sense of like meaninglessness or futility or frustration with like just all the things that we seem to be trying to do to live a Christian life. And I think I think that David is there's a little bit of that here and there's a little bit of that in a lot of his psalms. And so I want to talk just for a moment about um, the stages of spiritual formation. I actually have this book. I, I thought I'd mention it just in case nobody has, somebody hasn't read it. How many of you remember when, when we went through this book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality? Um, if you haven't read this book, it's actually, I would say it's a really, really helpful book. Um, it, one of the more, I, I don't like Christian help, self-help books. I can't stand leadership books. I'm just being honest. Like, like they just like most of them are repetitive and and unhelpful for me personally at least. This book is really transformative, and it takes you on an inner journey of really developing the rhythms and the thoughtfulness to walk out your life with God and your pursuit with God. So highly suggest this book, um, emotionally healthy spirituality. And somewhere in the middle to the end of the book, um, Pete Scazzaro highlights. These, there's six stages of, of spiritual formation that have been documented by previous writers. And these stages are sort of like, you see lots of writers throughout the ages allude to these, these particular stages of formation. And I want to um, kind of mention, highlight one, is that when you move, I'll, I'll explain all six of them, but when you move from what is called stage three to stage four, there, there's a point where there's an active outer life that we develop in stage three of ministry, of doing things. And stage four that is this place where we, we become sort of disillusioned with those things and we have a journey that goes inward. And God is actually inviting us to go inward into a deeper knowing of Him. So I'm just going to read them out because staying them in stages sounds so formulaic. But the first stage is awareness of God. Like that you, you become aware that God is. Um, the second stage is a discipleship and learning stage where you begin to grow in your knowledge of who God is. The third is this like active life. Typically at the, the outflow of when you start gleaning and learning is that you want to do something with it. And so there's, there's an active life. And then the fourth stage is this inward journey, which we'll come back to. Um, they also call, there, there's, there's this thing here that actually the writer talks about in the book that's been talked about for many hundreds of years in different language, but, but he calls it the wall. And the wall is when, you, when you're moving from this stage three to stage four, you're doing this ministry, active life, and you sense that disillusion, you sense that discontentment, and so you're being drawn deeper, and it can feel as though, like, God's not present, and He has left you somehow, or He's abandoned you, or you didn't, you, you, your faith was not genuine. There's this, there's this place that you have to push through to go um, on this inward journey with God. And as you keep going, 
The fifth stage is where we move from this inner, deeper life of contentment and rest with God into an outer life that is more at rest and more full. Um, So uh, sometimes people even do some of the exact same ministry things that they did in in the earlier stage. They just do it with a level of of fulfillment and content that's that's different from the earlier. And then the final thing is to be transformed by love. And when people come to the wall, they often get disillusioned with all the things they're doing for God. And they, they start, they, they don't have as much meaning to them as they had previously. And in order for us to, in order for you, let me say it like this, not just us, but order for you when you reach this place, and I think this, it's not like we only come to this place one time in life. We may come to this place numerous times. But in order for you to continue growing spiritually, you have to stop an obsession with what you're building for God or what you're doing for God and come and simply do what David prayed for, and that is to dwell in his house. Just to dwell with him. The critical thing that happens at this place is that we have to let go of all the doings that we've tried to do to become what we think He wants us to become so that we can rest in the love that He's already provided for us. And so I thought about like just jumping into the, let's behold the beauty, seek the Lord. But the reality is that David wrote this sequentially and I would I could point to other scriptures about this. We have to first come to the place that we can simply dwell within God's created reality for our life and be content there. Be content that if I never do some perfect, amazing thing, if I never realize all of the potentiality that's within me, that I can be content with the love of God. So this is what it means to dwell. Just to come and dwell. And that's that's what David is saying. Like, I've been fighting enemies my whole dang life. And you've been protecting me. Let me just come and sit here. So we've been reading um, in our by journals on Genesis. And I want to jump to Genesis. Hold the thought. Um... Read Genesis 2, 1 through 8. Um, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 both give an account of creation. They do so from different angles. And so when we're reading Genesis 2, this is sort of like the second, it's not just a sequential thing from Genesis 1 to Genesis 2. This is like a secondary, different account of creation that, that zooms in from a different place. And so just, just read that, R- listen to this. The Genesis 2, 1-8, Thus the heavens and earth were completed in their, all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work He had been doing. So on the seventh day, He rested from all His work. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it He rested from all the work of the creating He had done. This is the account of the heavens and earth and how they were created. When the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. Okay. So when we look at the Genesis account of creation, God is not just creating nature in a sort of like obligatory obligatory operational way. He's not just setting things into some sort of divine order that can function. It's incredible to me. Like I love, like I love reading about marine biology 
and ecosystems. And it's incredible to me the way that creation works together in a harmonious way to sustain life. But as amazing as all that is, he, God isn't just doing it because he's like exploring his engineering prowess, you know? Like he, he is doing, he's creating nature to be a temple. Like when you look at the way the tabernacle and the temple are created, we don't have time to go into today in the way the Genesis account of creation. Like this is a temple. This is a place where worship is going up to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the God who created something out of nothing. This place in creation is is a, it's a it's a temple, and we see this all throughout the Scripture that the mountains are you know worshiping Him, that the seas they roar on His behalf, that that all the parts of creation, that even the little the little birds that He takes care of, that this this place has been created to be a temple of worship to Yahweh, and at the middle of that temple, it's like right in the middle of the temple of creation, God creates and puts an image bearer. Because in, all, in temples there are images. God puts an image bearer, which is Adam. This man. And he puts him there to do some work. Right? But his main role is not to do work. His main role is to dwell in the house that God has created. That's why Genesis takes such careful account to describe to us this reality that that God walked with Adam in the cool of the day. That He was just with him. You, You have to see the sequence of what's happening here. Man is coming to dwell in something that God has already created. Like, that's what Genesis 2 is showing us, is that God has done, He spun the, the incredible, creative, engineering beauty of creation, and then He takes man, and He puts him into the very center of what is already there. Like, all the potential was already in the ground. It says that the seeds had not you know, started sprouting, because He hasn't thrown rain on the earth. I don't know, God's not throwing rain, but he, rain hasn't come down. And so, like, all the potentials in the ground, everything is there. He puts the image bearer at the center of it, and all he wants him to do is to come to be with him and to steward this place. Like, this is the key. In our life with God, we are not called to build a house for God. We are called to come and dwell in the house that He's already building. And I think that we spend our entire lives spinning up ideas of how we can create everything in our life in such a perfect way that God will come down and dwell. God, look at my beautiful life house I've created for you. Life house is a decent band, but that's not what I mean. Look at this beautiful, look at this... Uh, Look at this thing I've done. Look how awesome it is. Pause that thought for a minute. Can you show these pictures? I watched this cool documentary recently. It's called Spaceship Earth. This thing that you see, this was created back in the early 90s. It's called the biosphere. So this is, um, you can go to the next picture actually. What they did with this biosphere is a really interesting documentary, by the way. If you, it hooked me because Spaceship Earth is the name of that ride at Epcot and Disney World, and that's my favorite ride in Disney. So I was just like, "Ah, oh, what is this?" And so anyway, started watching it. And what they did, um, you can see this. Hold right here. This is the initial biosphere team. What they did is they had this group of people that were basically doing these projects, these incredible projects together. They went, they built a boat that they sailed around the world in. They like created their own sustainable farming projects. They did, this group just did all these things. 
And they had these thinkers that were thinking, like, at some point, we are going to have to leave this earth because there's going to be an environmental apocalyptic tragedy. And so we're going to have to leave this earth. And they said, the thing that we're going to have to do, if we have to go inhabit Mars or do something, is that we're going to have to recreate the earth's atmosphere and ecological environmental makeup. And so in this place called the biosphere, they, re- they, they made, go to this next picture. There's a, there should be another one. So they, re- they made a desert. They made a rainforest. They made an ocean, right? This is actually like part of the ocean that literally has coral reefs. They recreated like virtually all the biomes. I don't think they had like very winter driven, but they recreated these biomes in this thing. And the goal was to lock people in it for two years and let it to be an entirely self-contained system. They traveled the whole world getting like animals, Rat, big animals, small animals. They picked up coral reef out of like different continents. This is like incredible project. And so they, they had like dozens and dozens of scientists working on this. And they're going to put all these people in there and they're going to sh- lock the door air, airtight. And this thing is going to be like, have you ever seen those, these terrariums? The little things. This is going to be like the largest terrarium that has ever existed and it's going to sustain them for two years. And this is like a scientific project. And if you watch it, you pull it down, it's cool. If you watch the, the, the story, they get like six months into this thing and like plants start dying. The CO2 levels go to the point where these guys are, are they're going to die. Like their base, like their bodies are shutting down because they don't have oxygen. And it, and it like, they tried this thing multiple times and you're talking like all the smartest scientists in the world and they, they can't do it. Like, and, and I, I it, bl- it blew my mind watching how much attention and to detail was given and they can't really even explain why they can't do it, but they could not recreate what we have like with the, with the smartest minds in the world. And I think sometimes we as Christians are like biosphere creators. Like God has given us a way to live within Him. We do not have to go and recreate everything. Like we're called to come and dwell and live within what He is. We are called to be abiders more than builders. Like He is the great architect. We don't have to build the perfect life for Him. He has already done that in Jesus and invites us to come and dwell with Him. It's also kind of cool that they couldn't do it. This kind of makes me happy. And maybe at some point they will be able to. But as of right now, there is a, it, it blows my mind that there's a particularity to the way that God has established our earth to sustain and function that we can't yet replicate. And because he's a master builder. I, I want to read you this, this uh, Acts uh, passage. It says, this is, this is uh, referencing Solomon and David and the tabernacle. If you, if you don't know the story, David built this tabernacle, built this kind of a strong word as a tent where they had the ark of God dwell and people would minister before it and the priests would minister and there was dancing and singing in the tabernacle. And then his son Solomon established a temple which was kind of like semi-permanent place for God to come and dwell. But, but I want you to see what Acts 7 says. It says, this is, this is I believe Stephen is talking to a group of religious leaders who are questioning him about his faith. And he says, Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant, the law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in that land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where is my resting place 
to be. Has not my hand made all these things? So God does not look for us to build a house for Him to dwell in. He looks for us to come and dwell within the house that He is creating. You don't have to build some sort of special life. You just have to come and rest with Him. And so I want to come back to this this stage of formation that we were talking about. Because in order for us to with the stage of formation where we can go from this sort of active life to an inner life to be transformed, we must let go of our belief that it is primarily our activity that's God, that God is after. We must let go of this belief. Like, sometimes we even cognitively know that it's not our activity, but our heart has not settled in on this idea that it is not our activity that he's after primarily. He is, he is interested in it. But he's primarily after our friendship. And, and if we're to continue to grow spiritually, we have to come into this place. Like he, We are going to have to enter into a place of prayer that's, that's where we let go of our anxiety. And I, I want us to be seekers of God and gazers on his beauty, but in order for us to do that, we must first become dwellers. So, I'm going to finish with this question. We'll, we'll talk about this for a minute. What does it mean, then, to dwell in the house of God? If, if, if my goal in life is to come and dwell in His house, what does that mean? So, David's desire in this prayer was to build a physical, literal temple. But we can see in Acts 7, that's not ultimately what God's desire was. That's not what he was looking for. So Matthew 21, 13, we've, we've read this text a number of times through the years. Jesus is in the temple. He's driving out um, the religious people. And actually understand here, when, when Jesus comes in to drive out the religious people with the whip, this is people who are coming in to purchase items of worship. They're purchasing little birds to sacrifice. Because if you were poor... Um, you, and you couldn't purchase like a, a larger mammal, you would purchase these birds as, an offer, as a sacrificial offering. And, they're, and the religious people are sitting there taking advantage of, of the poorest people who are, ob, who are obliged. Like imagine this pure Hebrew who's coming to do his pure worship. They're taking advantage of him by overcharging for these birds so that they can come and enter into worship. Jesus comes onto that scene. He kicks, he's like, this is not what my house is about. And he says, my house will be called a house of prayer. And so, God's house is established on the place of prayer. There's two, there, we're going to pray in a second, but there's two facets I want to highlight about prayer. First, facet of prayer that I want to highlight at the beginning of the year is that prayer is meant to be done in community. Our dwelling with God was never meant to be a singular individual thing. Like when you look at the the early church, one of the most striking things about them is their togetherness, especially in the place of prayer. Ephesians 2.22 that we've read says that we are being built together for a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Like we cannot be within the dwelling of God without being together in prayer. Like that is critical. It's fundamental that we are called to be a praying people, but we're we're called to be a praying people that are together. This is the reason that we do we go to such length to put together these journals to do the prayers at, at the 1130 time. We do this because we want to be a praying community that's not just praying individually, but is praying cohesively. Amen? The second thing is that our call in prayer is simply to dwell. Our call in prayer is simply to dwell. Well, the mystics... If, if you've ever read like the Christian mystics like Teresa of Avila, St. John of the Cross, and all these, 
all these different people, all of them will tell you in their prayer lives about these beautiful, incredible encounters that they've had with God that are like, oh my gosh, how could I, you know, how could I ever experience that? But every single one of them, all of, if, I'm telling you, when you read like all the great mystics and spiritual direction people, all of them highlight this same idea that the, the place that you start in the journey inward with God is to simply come and be in prayer. Like before we can seek out His beauty, before we can, you know, have like all of that, the, the, always the invitation is to simply come and be. Sometimes prayer for me is simply sitting in silence with my thoughts and God. I'm not trying to figure anything out. I'm not trying to get an answer. I'm not trying to get the prophetic word for the next week. I'm just in silence sitting with God and my thoughts. Thomas Merton said that prayer is not so much a way to find God as a way of resting in Him who loves us, who is near to us. For me, prayer is where I let go of my cleverness to solve problems, my anxiety to fret of them, my heroics to please God, my shame-driven self-degradation, I let go of all of those things simply to be in God's presence. I don't try to figure out or sort out. And if I start trying to figure out or sort out, I let God figure that out. So I have this, I have this one, one encouragement for you. We're, we're starting this 12 Gaze and Seek. How many of you have some time usually daily, that you pray. Raise your hand if you pray. I don't care if it's two seconds. You have some time that you pray. Here's my encouragement to you this week. Um, and I'm stealing this from many of the great like spiritual, mystic, Christian. When I say mystic, some people hear like wizards and dragons. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm talking about Christians who love God, who have a more like heightened awareness of, of their communion with God in prayer. So just, just hear me out if that word trips you up. Um, this, is, this is something that's like, that I actually took from the book of the Cloud of Unknowing, but it's, it's highlighted in other things. One thing that I do in prayer, this is my encouragement for you this week, is if, you, if you're sitting in prayer, I try to spend five or ten minutes just in silence in His presence. And how many of you have ever taken five or ten minutes of silence? And all of a sudden it's just, just like brain. Um, one of the things, and I know we're getting really specific here, but one of the things that the anonymous writer in Cloud of Unknowing says to do is to pick a word, pick a word like Jesus or God or love. One of the words to you that, that most encapsulates your relationship with God. And just sit in silence with God. And every time thoughts come, just say Jesus. So you could sit there, dwelling with God, and every time that like, oh my gosh, i got to budget my... Jesus. Jesus. And my goal is not to find that perfect nugget of revelation or to get that direction. It's just to simply find a centrality of focus on dwelling with Him in a way that every other thought dissipates. Um, I don't know what else to say but that. It's, it's, it, works, it works for me. I, I'll sit there in silence and as thoughts come, I just say, Jesus. And for me, this is like a letting go 
of a performance-driven life of prayer. It's like sometimes I get with my friends, pray, and I'm like, man, like, am I as good a prayer as that? Some serious, they're doing some serious machine gun prayer. Like, I, I don't want to have that mindset when I pray. I want to have a mindset of dwelling. And even before I'm like, okay, God, I'm going to seek you. I'm going to seek your face. I'm going to see your beauty. Before, before any of that comes just being with God. Amen? Um, I think, my opinion is that discontentment with ourselves is what causes us, causes us, causes us, causes us to go out and build and create and do things for God apart from God. I think when we're dissatisfied with our own spiritual life, we often try to create things that make us feel as though we're more spiritual than we are. And like prayer, is, it's like, it's not like climbing a mountain. It's like falling into an ocean. I'm, I'm letting go of all of those, those sort of traps to help me feel better myself. And I'm just sitting with God. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to stand and I want us to find like I want God to do something supernatural where he he reworks our prayer life. And I want us to just pra- I want us to take a minute and I want us to practice what we just just talked about. I want us to close our eyes, open our hands. Let's just be with God. And as you hear any thought come, we're going to take this is group silent moment. As you hear any thought come, just just pick one word. Just shoot those thoughts away with that word. Lord, I just pray for every person in this room that you would take us to a deeper place of dwelling.
Take us to a deeper place in your spirit, God. God, that we would find this one love and desire more valuable than any other treasure. I pray that you would break down the idolatry of our own work and you would bring us into intimacy with you. And we thank you that your grace is the one that will lead us there. In Jesus' name, amen. If you can come and grab the elements, we'll come back to our seats. This morning when I think about the table that God has prepared for us, one of the things I often think of is, the, is how encompassing God's work is. It's like forgiveness and grace and healing and life and abundance and joy and it's lots of things. This morning I'm thinking about um, that there are, many, there are many things outside of His will. There's many things that aren't, you know, his work. And I'm thinking about the sufficiency of his table. That while it is encompassing, it's also simply sufficient. That you don't need God and anything else. Even though there are other things in this life that can bring some temporary forms of joy, can bring some temporary whatever, you don't need God and anything. You only need him. And when we, when we take a table of, of bread and of juice, we are reminded of the encompassing work of his, of his death and his resurrection, but also the sufficiency, the simplicity of this meal. And so let's, let's lift, it, lift this in prayer. We thank you, God, that we don't need you and anything. We only need you. I pray that you would allow us to be yielded to the sufficiency of Jesus in our life, that we would not crave um, anything else but that which is found in your kingdom. We bless you and we say thank you. Everybody said, Amen. You may receive. One quick uh, announcement I want to make you aware of. I don't know else how to transition out of this moment. It's just kind of 
feel like I was somebody else was supposed to do announcements, but that felt unfair to like, all right, do the announcements now. <laughs> but um, one announcement I want to make you aware of, because we didn't have this date on the previous, is that we are going to be doing uh, the camp out that we mentioned this last week. And we are going to be doing that on the last weekend of February, which is February 29th, 25th. 25th, 29th, that's not a date. <laughs> Every four years, yes. Um, the 24th and 25th, we're going to be... 25th and 26th, Friday and Saturday, 25th and 26th, we're going to be going on a camp out like one hour from Dallas. Uh, um, my family has 10 acres of land out in the woods, and we will have some time of prayer and worship as a family, and that will finish our our time of dwell, gaze, and seek. And so we'd love for you to put that down on your calendar. Probably what we will do is head out like around noon or something and get down there a little early and, you know, um, you know, might take the kids out a little bit early and get down there. But you're welcome to certainly just come after work and school. But just mark that in your calendar and we will certainly be watching the weather, but hopeful that we will have some ni nice weather on that time. And uh, we, listen, we just really are, are grateful that you're participating um, in this week and that you here hopefully do not have Omicron right now. And um, we will <laughs> see, you, see you next week. Do you have any other announcements to make? <laughs> All right, I'm going to, if everyone wants to stand, I'm going to lead us in a closing prayer. Actually, before we read this prayer, I have some a one little theological thought to add to Jordan's message. You know, one time I have a friend who's a flat earther. And uh, and he told me that I wasn't following the Bible because I didn't believe flat earth. And that I was believing science over scripture. And I was like, what scripture proves to you that the earth is flat? And he says, the Bible says that the earth is God's footstool. Don't you know that footstools have to be flat or you can't keep your feet on it? He was totally serious. So now you guys are all more informed about the Bible. Let's pray this prayer of St. Francis together as we go. Oh, you're going to have to find your own application. Get into a deep moment of dwelling and say footstool over and over and over every time another word comes to your mind and you'll get the application. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. Have a good week. <laughs>